listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Well, good morning, Red Church. Uh, What an extraordinary gift it is to get to be with you this morning, even if it is virtually. If we haven't met yet, my name is Bethany. And um, man, I was in Australia just a little bit over a year ago. And it's crazy to me to think that I was with you there and get to be with you here now. With that said, I am very sad that today I don't get to be in your presence. That would be my dream situation. I consider myself at least a little bit a faithful Australian. I love the country. I love the people. I'm just lacking a few merit badges, if you will. I haven't pet a kangaroo yet, which I still need to do. And I haven't maintained or ascertained the ability to do the accent well. So forgive me for my American accent today. Um, But I say all that just really to say that I wish I could be with you in person. Your pastoral team has been an extraordinary gift to me personally. Mark and Sarah, just great influences in my life, as well as the rest of your leadership team. Um, And so we're grateful uh, for the opportunity, one, to get to teach, but I'm grateful just to you, Red Church, for the gift of your leadership here in Portland, Oregon, but also around the world. And I just wanted to bless you with that before we get started this morning. We are going to jump into the scriptures. So if you would grab your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 20. And uh, we're going to take a look at a a parable that Jesus uh, spoke about and spoke to this this morning together. Um, So with that, would you uh, pray with me before we get started? I know we're online. I know it's a bit unconventional, but I want to welcome the Holy Spirit into our time together and ask him to animate and illuminate whatever it is that he has for us today. So let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, we bless you for the gift of presence. We thank you that at the center of the Trinity is a perfect love that we as your people get to sit under and encounter. Spirit of God, today I pray that you would use my humble words to bless this family, to bless this church, to bless this community. Jesus, we're all eager to be led by you, to learn from you, And so we welcome your spirit, even now, just to lead us in this time. Welcome your peace and your comfort and your hope for those who specifically need to hear it and feel it today. And we welcome, above all, God, your presence with us. Would you come? Would you change us? Would you transform us through the teaching of your word? Father, would you set a guard over my heart and my mind? And may I, God, just be faithful to what you've entrusted to me in this time. So come Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, a few years ago, uh, an article came out in Time Magazine about the millennial generation, noting that we were, in so many words, the most narcissistic and entitled generation America had ever seen. Big thanks to Time for their encouragement. Now, this wasn't just rhetoric. The writer of the article backed up his statement with some cold, hard facts. Things like 40% of the millennial generation believe that they should be promoted every two years, regardless of performance. That according to the National Institute of Health, narcissistic personality disorder is nearly three times as high for millennials as opposed to those in the generation that's now 65 and older. And the crowning jewel 
A study of youth and religion found that the guiding morality of 60% of millennials in any situation is that they'll be able to just feel what is right. Now, I'm not here to knock on millennials. Heck, I am one. But this kind of information does provoke one to ask, why? Now, if you do a bit more research, you'll learn that there are some unique facts about this generation that contributes to our sense of entitlement or narcissism. We are, statistically speaking, the most educated generation to date. We're also the most diverse, which has afforded us the gift of learning and having many different perspectives that are not just rooted in a linear or one-dimensional kind of ideal. We're the most healthy, meaning we exercise more, we smoke less, and we eat healthier. Go figure. I don't think they were including 2020 facts. Do you know what I mean? Those stats are kind of shaky now. Uh, We're also the most awarded generation, and I use that term lightly. You know, everybody gets a prize in this generation, and we are the most technologically advanced, uh, globalizing not just our relationships, but our productivity and creativity and development and business, making us fairly successful people, and not just in terms uh, of America or Australia, but really at a global level. And now this isn't all bad. Um, Obviously, what I've listed here has served us in thousands of ways and really been a gift to society at large. But it's not all good either. Sociologists and psychologists alike reason that these facts and opportunities have both supported and enforced a have-it-all belief system that centers around what they would argue to be new definitions of fairness or equity, all of which are rooted in a what-I-deserved or what-I-am-owed narrative. Now, the problem with this way of thinking is that it is at a fundamental level, as one author put it, the great enemy of flourishing. Its relational impacts far outreach just those interpersonal dynamics because this narrative is really functionally self-sabotaging and self-destructive. It's rooted in a warped sense of justice, one that says I am owed and deserve the benefits of something something simply because I exist. And while we could all roll our eyes at that sentiment and scoff at that, I would imagine that we, no matter our generation, can actually relate. The impact of this millennial belief system may feel new and provocative to some of us, but the reality is the spirit behind it is age old. Today, like I mentioned earlier, we're going to pick up in Matthew's gospel where we find Jesus responding to this kind of thinking. Before we get into the chapter, I want us to look back just a few verses just to help uh, provide a bit more context for where we're picking up today. Now, maybe you'll remember, maybe not, but in these verses prior, Jesus had just finished interacting with a man that he called the rich young ruler, Matthew called the rich young ruler. And he had just told his disciples that it was hard or difficult for someone with wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Look with me, just maybe a few verses back at chapter 19, verse 25. We read this. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, 
at the renewal of all things, when the son of man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Verse 30, but many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. Jesus continues chapter 20, verse one. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for a day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. And he told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and uh, and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. And he asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. And he said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when the, those who came, who were hired first, <laughs> verse 10, so when those, so when those came who were hired first, man, that was hard <laughs> for me. <laughs> they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only an hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of work in the heat of the day. But he answered them. I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? And so, verse 16, the last will be first and the first will be last. Now, I know that's a lot. Stay with me. There's some good stuff here for us. Now we pick up in verse one and here we find Jesus actually responding to Peter's question in chapter 19, verse 27. And in it, Peter, after encountering someone who wouldn't sell all that they had to follow Jesus asks in so many words, what's in it for us? Or maybe better said, what do we have or will we have since we've left everything to follow you? And so Jesus responds and says that he and the disciples will be with him at the renewal of all things, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Not a bad gig. And then he says this, many who are first will be last and those who are last first. A statement that while subtle and subversive in many ways had the power to flip Peter's thinking on its head. And I believe that was the point. Jesus continues on, and in verse 1 of chapter 20, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like. This is our cue that Jesus is about to tell an important story. Now, in the first half of it, we see him describe what would have been commonplace for the hearers. A landowner in an agrarian society needed to hire day laborers to work his fields. So he went out early in the morning to the labor pool, and he hired a number of workers. And he agrees to pay them all the standard wage, which was a denarius a day, and they all agreed to that. We then read that he goes out around nine in the morning and he sees a few workers standing around and he invites them to work. 
Then he goes out again around noon and then again at three, inviting more and more to come work in his fields. Finally, we see him go out one more time around 5 p.m. And this time he asks why those not working were just standing around, to which they respond that no one had hired them. And again, he invites them to work his land. Now, there are a few important things here that I want us to note before we move on in our story that I think is going to help us grasp what's really happening here. First, it's important to note that there is an agreement or a contractual situation happening between the workers and the landowner. The workers he hired were most likely poor or of low standings, at least societally speaking. Many scholars believe that they would have been the weak or the sick or the disabled, even the elderly of the community, many targets of discrimination. And that makes this parable even more stunning. These workers were dependent day to day on the work that they found, making the landowner's employment that much more significant. Next, notice that he pays fairly and generously. A denarius would have been enough to get what you needed to eat and live for that day, and that was generous, especially considering the workers he had hired. And finally, we see that the landowner goes out five different times of the day to hire the workers. Now, we have no idea what he needed for his land, if he had enough workers or if he didn't, but we are left to wonder a few things about this. Why not send your servant out for you? And why, especially at the end of the day, would you hire laborers for such a short amount of time? Whatever the story or the context here, the imagery seems to point us both to the generosity of the landowner and the value he places on those that he hires. All of this sets the stage for what happens next. Now, the day ends and it's time to get paid and things get sticky as it often does with money. Now, the landowner asks his foreman to pay the workers, starting with the last hired. So those hired at 5 p.m. get a denarius. And wow, those who were hired earlier get a little excited and they think, you know, if they worked for so little and they got a whole denarius, how much more are we going to get? Which makes sense, right? I mean, they had worked harder and longer. But then they too receive one denarius. Now, I can almost hear like that record scratch sound, like the like heads turning, everybody freaking out. I think that's probably what happened. It's not in the Bible, but let's just roll with it. So, all right, the, the workers complain to the landowner and they call out the injustice that they were only getting paid with those who had worked an hour got paid. And they basically say, hey, look, what's the deal? We've been working all day long in the heat. Come on. Now, what we see in the landowner here is actually that he is just paying everyone what he committed to pay them. But it's his generosity that exceeded their sense of justice. So he answers them and he reminds them that they agreed to work for that pay and that there was no injustice happening. And he goes on to say that he can pay what he wants to, to whomever he wants. And in doing that, he reveals their ingratitude by calling out their envy of his generosity. And then to end in a work, I think, of literary genius, we read that the landowner now definitively says that the last will be first and the first will be last. Okay, two things to note before we move on. And I promise, hang in there. We're almost through the text. And then I'll say a bunch of other things that are far more interesting. Um, Let's talk about the elephant in the room. The landowner pays all the laborers the same, regardless of the hours that they have worked. 
That doesn't make sense, right? I mean, not in our worldview. While the pay was agreed upon, it seems to reason that you would get uh, paid what you deserve, what you worked for. There was no logic to what the landowner was doing. There was no rhyme to his reason. And while he was perfectly just, his generosity disrupted their sense of fairness, causing them to question his goodness. Second, notice that the landowner pays the last first. Now, as far as storytelling goes, this is pretty provocative. This is a moment where the listeners would have questioned what was happening. Why pay those who worked last or the least first? What are we as the listener supposed to hear in that? Then in his final statement, we see him emphasize a line that is in many ways a commentary to the listeners on social and economic power, but also a commentary about the kingdom of God, that the last in the kingdom of God will be first. Now, that statement may be a familiar one to you. It maybe is even benign upon first hearing it. Maybe it's even celebrated, especially if you consider yourself the last. But for many of us, like Peter and the hearers of this story, it could be more problematic than we'd like to admit. You see, that phrase rubs some of us the wrong way, especially those of us, at least I can speak for an American turf, uh, those of us in the West, it it robs us of something. It rubs us the wrong way. It's messing up our metrics for blessing and reward and compensation. It just doesn't meet up to our standards. In fact, some would argue it is the antithesis of what most of us believe about the return of our efforts. Justice here is outdone by extravagant generosity. Generosity is undeserved and unearned and a system of reward in return that seems impartial and imbalanced to a fault. So how do we make sense of what Jesus is doing here? What's he getting at? Before we can answer that, I think we have to come to grips with two profound truths that we find within our story. The first is that of disproportionate grace. That's the word I'm using. It's not very delicate, but I feel like it's helpful in understanding our context. I don't want that phrasing also to scare you away. Maybe it's reminding you of that weird youth experience you had or whatever. What I'm talking about here is the kind of grace that is offered out of proportion or disproportionately to our deserving or our earning or our effort. This kind of grace dismantles our paradigm for blessing and reward, which if we'll allow it to, will actually interrupt our attachment to things like status and ego and achievement and influence and really reorient us from the ground up. Priest and theologian Justin Holcomb defined this kind of grace as God's uncoerced initiative and pervasive extravagant demonstration of care and favor. Grace. In the kingdom of God, as we see it in our text, challenges our assumption of what it means to get what you deserve or what you think you deserve. Grace is gift. It, in the language of N.T. Wright, isn't the story of a thing that one person can have a lot of and someone else a little. The story told here by Jesus is one that's meant to flip our thinking and not only our thinking, but Peter's thinking and those who were listening, they're thinking on its head about reward about what it is to deserve something. Jesus in this parable is stating that we are not reducible to our productivity or lack thereof. And often that the kingdom of God does not look fair, at least in human terms. 
It's not based on merit or status or earning, but on the reality that Jesus promises us everything and at the same time asks of us everything in return. As Dallas Willard once said, grace is opposed to earning, which means that true grace will confront the areas within us that we or where we don't actually believe that, where we don't actually believe that grace is opposed to earning. And it will challenge our belief of that for others as well. If we see nothing else in this story, we see the profound pride of those who assume they are more deserving over and against another based on what they have done or how they have lived. There is a gross contrast between those who worked the last hour and those who worked all day. The greatest discrepancy being that those in the last hour were of those of greatest need. And still, we see the frustration and jealousy and complaint by the day workers that the landowner would show them such generosity. All of this ultimately revealing their pride and inability to see themselves rightly in the eyes of the landowner, as well as their prejudice against those whom they would deem less deserving of his grace. Scholar Stanley Hauerwas speaks to this reality when he says, God's grace is the grace of truth, refusing to hide from us the character of our edgy belief of those whom we think undeserving. Disproportionate grace will always move us beyond our understanding of what is right or fair and deserved. It will never be less than just, but it will often go beyond it which ultimately calls us to expand our understanding of kingdom justice, which leads us to the next truth we find in our text, generous justice. Now, justice is a complicated word for lots of reasons these days. So please allow me to clarify what I mean. Justice in this text is based on the integrity and the character of faithfulness. It is justice based on rightness or what is right and true. But the kind of justice we see in our text was something altogether different. The justice the workers asked for was influenced by their circumstances and opinions about what they thought they deserved. And it's this kind of justice that often oversimplifies complex realities and I believe propagates false superiority and really, though unintentional, also perpetuates the oppression of the marginalized, not just economically speaking, but spiritually so as well. Meaning, justice as we see it being demanded in the text is not actually justice. Scholar R.T. France says that Jesus will often offend our sense of justice, which begs the question, what do we do with our offense the landowner's excessive propensity to give and care for the last hour workers, for many of us, violates our sense or definition of fairness. This kind of justice to us looks rash and undisciplined, but quite the opposite is true. What we see revealed about justice in our text is that we are only just to the extent that the least of these, the undeserving, the underprivileged, the last picked, Often the poor and the old and the disabled receive care and honor. Justice, as we see it here, is born of grace. Born out of the righteousness of the one giving it, not on the requirements of the one receiving it. 
In verse 15, the landowner asked the complaining workers, are you envious because I am generous? That question restated may sound something like, are you mad because I'm good? In the kingdom of God, our sense and understanding of justice will be challenged. Justice is God setting things to right, and it starts always with the undeserving. Jesus is and always will be after the common good of all. And justice on his terms is rooted in an upside down, unpredictable kingdom. God's disproportionate grace and God's generous justice are central to our understanding of his kingdom. They both, when received, free us from the tyranny of the metrics of this world and draw out of us the beauty and the humility and mercy that we see demonstrated in the life of our rabbi. But like we asked earlier, how do we make sense of what Jesus is doing here and what is he really after? At the heart of our parable, we find Jesus inviting us to see ourselves in this story right where we are. And then pointing us towards who we are to become. If you're anything like me, you will assume you are the first hour worker or maybe the second or the third. But when we realize that the story isn't about earning or reward or merit, we may just find that we're closer to the last than the first. And that Jesus doesn't leave us in that place. The call for us and the disciples alike is to become like the landowner, to embody grace, to do justice generously, and to embrace the last becoming the first. But how? So glad you asked. Now, it's been said that you can't give what you haven't first received. And when it comes to grace, this is no less true. If we are to embody it, we have to first experience it. Which means coming face to face with the reality that in Jesus, you get what you don't deserve. You get hope in salvation. You get joy for sadness. You get mercy for your sins. Embodying grace will mean extending to others what we have been freely given. Becoming not only a physical and visible representation of that gift, but a spiritual and relational one as well. Practically, this will mean choosing to love others extravagantly and unconditionally, which is harder than most of us like to admit. We'll have to move from reducing others to what we see them do or what we think they are doing or what they have accomplished or, or, or seeing them the way we think uh, that they ought to be or should be and instead seeing them as people in need of God's love. This act of embodying grace will demand our continual surrender of our prejudice, of our preference, and our judgment, which won't be easy, but it will change us. It will make us more like our rabbi. Grace is a cyclical gift. The more you receive, the more you want to give, and the more you give, the more you want to receive. Next. We need to do justice generously. It's easy enough, right? At the heart of justice, at least as we see it here in our text, is to really consider the undeserving among us. And not just to consider, but to move towards 
to bless, to care for, to honor those that we think are undeserving. Now, we often have a category of justice in our minds, especially those of us in the church. But if you would allow me to for just a minute, I want to shake that up a bit. Because most of the time, the reality is the undeserving in our minds are not just those on the streets or those suffering financially. In my experience, at least in the church, the undeserving often look like those we resent for getting something that we want but don't have. Why do they get you fill in the blank when I've given so much to follow you, Jesus? Why does that person who has given you their whole life suffer with the sickness while others are, who haven't given you anything, who haven't surrendered their lives, are well? Why do they seem free of consequences and my life seems riddled with them? Justice is not just for those who have less than we do. The justice in our text speaks to the disposition of the heart towards those we feel don't deserve the gift of grace. Doing justice generously means loving and giving to those whom we deem unworthy of it. And yes, that often falls under the category of our discrimination of others based on wealth or education or socioeconomic realities. But it is also about our neighbor about those who are sitting next to us, maybe in this very room, those who are very much like us. Finally, we are to embrace the last becoming first. Jesus ends his statement with, or his teaching with this statement, the last will be first and the first last. And make no mistake, this is a profound declaration about the kingdom. And its meaning here, I think, is twofold. First, in this statement, we find an invitation. Jesus is stating that his kingdom will be filled with the least of these, those that the world or his followers even would despise or look down upon or bypass. It will be these that Jesus elevates and honors. The invitation here is for us to join him in doing so, to show spiritual generosity in every sense of that word, and at the same time to consider how we are not so different from those in that position. Next, in his statement, we find a warning to those of us who would consider ourselves first, to those of us who have sacrificed and given up all we had to follow him, who do what needs to be done and who look and sound the way you would expect us to. Our warning is that our faithfulness and surrender are and will not be merit badges that promote us to the front of the line or ahead of someone else. Instead, they will simply be a right response to the grace that we have received. And if I can be honest, this text is and has been terribly confronting for me, especially looking at it this week. I've always identified more with the first hour workers in the story than that of the last. I identify with the older brother over the prodigal. It's kind of the bent that I have. Now, it's not hard for me to move towards a spirit, much like the workers of false martyrdom, you know, especially when needed. Uh, I've given you everything, Jesus. I mean, my goodness, I'm a pastor. Hello, where's the mercy? Where's the gift? Where's the grace for me? This is all a recipe for entitlement and tantrums. And I wish this wasn't true about me. I really, really do. I wish I was different or more mature or more worked out. 
But this response within me has been very much a part of my journey. It's true that God can feel disappointing and frustrating at times, especially in a year like 2020. And I imagine some of you even feel that way this morning, that his justice and his blessing and his generosity feel disproportionate to your sacrifice. And that's a real feeling. But what I've learned is that often my frustration and disappointment reveals more about what I believe about the kingdom and what I think I deserve in it than it does anything about what God is really like. In our story, the landowner never changes his terms of justice or blessing. It is the people who change their mind about what is fair. I don't know what your year has been like. I've only perceived it from afar. Talked to some friends there, Sarah and others. But I think I can speak generally and guess that many of us have felt that ache uh, or maybe even that narrative of not fair creeping in, at least from time to time. And I would imagine that some of you, like me, have felt your eyes kind of wander to that person next to you, comparing your situation to theirs and wondering why they have what you don't. And so I, I wonder if the call here in this teaching, and a very hard, I know, and long season, isn't just to make it through or to bite our tongues or to grit and bear it. Maybe, maybe there's an invitation here to something more. Maybe there's an invitation for us instead of hunkering down or measuring what's happening in us against what's happening in other people's. Maybe our invitation is to lean more deeply into this surrender or the understanding of our apprenticeship to Jesus and to learn and maybe even lean in greater ways into our understanding of God's grace towards us. Each of us have been given much, even in this very barren season, and there is much to celebrate, much to rest in. I think there's an invitation for us to remember what we have and what we have been given, what we, especially as the church of Jesus, have experienced as grace in this season. I believe this text invites us to realign our thinking, to reframe our understanding and vision for what it means to live life in an upside down kingdom. The warning for me, and I believe maybe for some of us today, is that the, our um, attitude of spiritual entitlement, that our belief of what we have earned or deserve from God, whether it be conscious or subconscious, and our inability to remember the grace we've been given and so desperately need, can and will hinder not only people from coming into the kingdom, but there's lots of work to be done, but keep us from actually advancing forward as God's people within it. Like I said, I have been freshly struck by this teaching of Jesus for many reasons. But what has been probably most compelling to me is that this teaching comes on the tail end of Jesus heading to Jerusalem to die. This is a parable isn't something that is spouted off for religious reasons or dogmatic purposes, but as a gift of preparation for life without him on earth. This teaching is a signpost to his disciples of what to look for, to what to cultivate, and who to love. In and through Jesus' imminent death, he will become every character in our story. 
Yes, he is the landowner, but he will also become the last hour workers as he takes on the infirmity and limitations of sin for the sake of us all. This is grace embodied. This is justice served. This is the first becoming the last. And the kingdom of heaven is like this.